You're listening to Ghost Radio, Station 0.5. It's the devil in the dive, and up next is another rad episode of Bad Band, Great Song. I think we've ever done. This is going to be a political one, maybe. I think. Is it? I don't know. I think so. It's great to to really get into some politics out here on the podcast. Yeah, finally make some statements, make some assertions, stand by them, put ourselves out there. This might be the most political podcast in twenty years. Hey, and hello everybody, welcome to the podcast that will piss you off. We're getting political today, I think. This is Bad Band, Great Song. I'm your host, Andrew Patrick Finelli, and with me is your other host of the show, Jeremy Cohen. Jerry. How you doing? How you been? <laughs> the band we're focusing our critique on today is New Radicals, and their song, You Get What You Give. You Don't get what you give. <laughs> let go. You got the music in you. Can you just feel the the inspiration swelling within you, dude? Always. I can't handle yeah. that. I can't handle it. I can't control myself. <laughs> I clearly I'm out of control. You, <laughs> you get what you give is the rousing, as Jerry just displayed, uplifting and. Kind of life-affirming, allegedly posy vibes, smash hit single from the New Radicals' first and only album. You Get What You Give is not only the band's biggest hit, it's their only hit. It's a song that shoots for some big ideas, arguably fails to adequately address any of them, and is mostly known to the majority of people for its troll-heavy celebrity culture criticizing outro, something Greg Alexander laments, despite being the man who chose to write those lyrics. And with all the celebs he could have targeted and called out at that time for being fake, he was so wrong. All those people are still like exactly who they were then. But, you know, more on this later. I don't want to give it all away. I wanted to make a joke about one of them. But yeah, yeah, even the pretty boys, they're all they're they're living their truths, man. <laughs> new Radicals. Oh, yeah. New <laughs> New Radicals is less of a band and more of a project helmed by a producer and songwriter who learned that success was not meant for him, but was rather meant for a version of him. And indeed, he would go on to share other versions of himself with other artists in the form of songs he'd write for them. New Radicals is one of those bands that doesn't really have fans as much as it has stands, at least in 2021. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. People are going to be pretty mad when we say, some people anyway, are going to be mad when we say New Radicals is a bad band. <laughs> well, here we go again. <laughs> oh shit. But as always, while we look at that, 
we're not here, believe it or not, I don't know if you believe it yet, but believe it or not, we're not here to prove to the diehards that New Radicals is bad. No, we're here to challenge the skeptics to recognize the greatness of their song, You Get What You Give. So, we are going to examine New Radicals and the song You Get What You Give in detail to articulate how and why to make the case that though New Radicals is a pretty bad band, You Get What You Give It's a pretty great song, even if not for the reasons most folks think it may be. But first, let's dive into the band's story. Let's fucking go. New Radical Story is less about a band and more about a person. An eccentric and idiosyncratic person. A producer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist, Greg Alexander. Jason Alexander's brother. Well... (laughs) <laughs> Not really. I just <laughs> I just needed to make the first Seinfeld episode of the show. All right, continue. And congratulations, Jeremy. This is the first Seinfeld reference of the show, and one made by an illustrious anarchist New York Jew such as yourself. I'm, this is good. <laughs> this is this is really good. This is strong. Representation matters, and I'm happy you, not me. You yes. were the one who did it. I gotta 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 shout out my fellow Jerry. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly, Jerry. And speaking of Greg Alexander and not Jerry, Greg Alexander was born in Gross Point, Michigan on May 4th, 1970. And he was born into a home practicing an extreme, grim, and conservative form of Christianity, which has undeniably become recognized as the true cult it is. Greg Alexander was born a Jehovah's Witness. Which I know you've told me this like a hundred times. But those those aren't the people from Mad Max Fury Road, right? The Witness <laughs> Me guys. That's a different. No, no, it's. Di- I mean, they're. I know we've been different. over this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> different, but I understand how you make that mistake. Really, it's so it's, it's very understandable, actually. Witness anyway. me. <laughs> That's how they show, that's what they do when they show up to your door, actually. That's, they just right. yell that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Alexander, a gifted musician, received his first guitar by age 12. And at age 14, he was already in a band and competing at a local battle of the bands against fellow Gross Point native, guitar prodigy, and human anomaly, John Five. <laughs> Five would go on to have his own tremendous career playing with the likes of Marilyn Manson and Rob Zombie. He also has his own solo career to be proud of. John Five actually got his nickname from Marilyn Manson, which... which I didn't know definitely that. Definitely, Yeah. Uh, it makes sense because Five took over guitar for a guy named Zimzum, <laughs> which seems, uh, you know, I can imagine Marilyn Manson not wanting to go from from calling his guitarist Zimzum to just John. So five yeah. makes sense. <laughs> it does. In this weird way, five does make sense. You're right. But back, back, back to Greg Alexander. Yes, yes, yes. Let's get back to Greg. Yeah. At age 16, Alexander had traveled out to California with his mother to visit his aunt. But as an October 14th, 2014 Billboard.com piece details, it was really sort of a re, uh, covert reconnaissance mission. In California, he discovered, quote, that post-60s spirit that was still alive in the mid-80s. During this summer in L.A., he lived in Compton, Studio City, and North Hollywood. 
Ah, yes, Compton, the city of free love. I thought that that was the epicenter of the summer of love, wasn't it? That's where Woodstock happened, right? In the city of Compton. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Yes, the billboard.com, nothing but facts on this show. And as Abraham Lincoln (laughs) once said, it is hard to believe the truth of all facts you read on the internet. The billboard, something like that. The (laughs) (laughs) billboard.com, don't, don't, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you know. Anyway, the billboard.com piece details how by September he had met producer Jimmy Iovine. Iovine was impressed by Alexander and offered him a deal with our old friends, A&M Records. But as Alexander was only 16, he wasn't able to officially sign. So they had to wait until he was 18. Uh, and he was given an allowance <laughs> that would keep him afloat while he wrote songs in preparation for his debut. Okay, so so when Alexander was 16, it was 1986. And I just mm-hmm. got to take a minute to shout out and highlight Brooklyn, New York native, Jimmy Iovine. <laughs> I forget he's from here, yeah. Yeah, man. Um, But so at this point in Jimmy's career, the 1986 that is, he had worked on some enormous albums, and I guarantee you love at least one of them. He did Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, Darkness on the Edge of Town and the River. He did Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. Oh, Tom Petty albums, Dire Straits, Patti Smith, John Lennon, Joan fucking Jett. Kansas, and that's just to name a few. Uh, he was even music supervisor for Sixteen Candles. Uh, I and didn't that's know all this. Bef- yeah, that's all before 1986. Um, and speaking of 16, Jimmy discovered him at 16, and since he couldn't <laughs> officially sign him, he gave him an allowance, which I which I imagine came out of his own pocket because at 16 cool. you couldn't be an employee for the label. Uh, Maybe some of that stuff has changed by now and been worked out, uh, you know, with parental consent and different types of contracts and stuff. But I'm not sure it was all worked out back then. It's pretty amazing and incredibly rare for a 16-year-old to get picked up like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also got to mention, though, he Jimmy Ivey goes on to signing Tupac. And producing endless more records. I mean, this is after his ex- after signing uh, signing Greg Alexander. Sure, sure, sure. Um, and he even founded Beats with Dr. Dre. He's had a seriously, right. seriously storied career. And uh, yeah, the dude is smart, talented, and has great taste. And it definitely says something about picking up a sixteen year old. <laughs> you know, he 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 knew what he was talking about in nineteen eighty six. Uh, phrasing something phrasing yeah. but yeah he, oh right he, he, he definitely knew about picking up a <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why we need the soundbite machine man i just <laughs> needed to get you on record saying it really says something about jimmy ivy and that he picked up a 16 year old oh my amazing yeah, but that's Jimmy well, Ivy, and it's it's really really <laughs> incredible. It's so it's it's such an interesting story. Yeah, and damn, I didn't know about Beats by Dre. That means he got paid by Apple. That's wild. oh yeah, yeah, he's chilling now. Well, anyway, let's talk about the fruits of Jimmy Ivy picking up that 16 year old. 
<laughs> oh man. Oh shit. Okay, so Greg Alexander's debut al- <laughs> Greg Alexander's debut album. <clears throat> His, de- his debut album, Michigan Rain, was released in 1989 when he was 19 years old. The album failed to gain traction. It also came out right around the time Polygram bought AM Records, an event you may recall from our previous episode on Soul Asylum. Alexander was seeing the music industry change before his eyes. Just as he, is, just as he entered the business, it was transforming into the conglomerated corporate clusterfuck that it is now yeah all that shady shit from uh, years prior was starting to surface it was Indeed. uh really forming yeah and as as the record industry continued to become what we know it as now his next album was released in 1992 on epic records that album intoxifornication which comprised pri- primarily re-released songs from his debut also failed to move the needle in any meaningful way. Just as everybody who failed during that al- that, that era, Alexander blames it on grunge. He was then <laughs> dropped by Epic. <laughs> oh, well, th- definitely the highlight for that album for me is in the song The Truth. Uh, mm-hmm. Towards the end of the song, he just goes, here comes the lawsuit, baby! And then the whole <laughs> song just turns into Slow Ride by Foghat. It was just That's like... Good. So hilarious. It just straight up goes into slow ride. <laughs> That's pretty. That is good. That is good. It's real funny. Really, really funny. Oh, wow. Well, I, I do got to say, though, about his music. I, I, I want to say I'd be remiss if I didn't say what I'm about to say. But I do feel compelled to make this clear. Solo Greg Alexander is terrible. It is awful music. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is it is unbelievably mundane, unremarkable music. I mean, it is so yep. truly mundane that it is I mean, it's almost completely genreless music. Allmusic.com calls it adult alternative pop rock. <laughs> but imagine, imagine you're 22 years old and the music, your music is called adult anything, adult contemporary or alternative. 22. It's so, it's so, so unfortunate. But uh, yeah, that's totally the genre of his music. It's like just the worst hybrid of Bon Jovi and Huey Lewis of the news. Wow. Like the worst parts of both of them. <laughs> wow. Well said. And, and may nothing I ever do be called, quote, adult <laughs> Except for your films. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the most noteworthy aspect of the music uh, and its product and its presentation is that, is that it comes off like the product of a very young person who is synthesized, as Jerry kind of spoke to just there. It comes off like a person, a young person, who has synthesized the cheesiest and most embarrassing elements of classic rock. But of course as a testament to the power of the internet to help any commodity find its audience, despite Alexander's two solo albums being among the worst ever recorded, ever, it has a host of fans giving them five-star reviews on allmusic.com. How about that? But what I will say is 22-year-old Greg Alexander is fucking hot. 
You should have kept that hair in tight clothes, but perhaps I'm biased. I don't know. Moving on. Uh. Exactly. Like I said, just the films. (laughs) Mm, Meow. (laughs) Something that would define Alexander's life is travel. The man had, and perhaps still has, a wanderer's spirit. Various accounts of his life have him crisscrossing the country, ending up in California during the releases of his solo albums, as we discussed, and then finding his way to New York City, where he spent his time busking, according to a November 12th, 2018 Billboard.com article. And as Alexander was a wanderer, his life became a bit more mysterious between the years of 1992 and 1997. We do have, however, some clues to pursue that help flesh out what Alexander was up to during these years. Andrew Finelli, private investigator. <laughs> that, that also needs to be a drop. Hell yeah. Fuck yeah. Let's uh let's get to work, gumshoes, and figure out where Carmen San Diego is going to be. I need to get some updated references. I don't have any reference that speaks to anybody under the age of thirty-three, and I'm starting to realize that now. Oh, yeah, I yeah. wonder who the youngest detective is. <laughs> well whoa, that's that's an interesting question. I don't know. Youngest no celebrity idea. detective, you know, youngest investigator. <laughs> Sorry, I should have been more specific. Like, I'm not talking about Monk, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Well, anyway, on September 29th, 1993, the lead singer of The Go-Go's, Belinda Carlisle, released her fifth solo album titled Real. Real featured Greg Alexander as a songwriter, specifically on the track Here Comes My Baby. Another adult alternative album that just wasn't heard. Yeah. Fifth, fifth album, fifth solo album. Isn't that crazy? Belinda Carlisle's had a lot of albums. <laughs> but but yeah. more, more importantly, throughout the mid-90s, Alexander continued to work with his most consistent collaborator. I'm talking about TV's Danielle Brisbois. Brisbois is perhaps most famous for her role as Stephanie Mills on the legendary American situation comedy, All in the Family. But for the purposes of this episode, Brisbois is a singer and songwriter. I wonder which work she's more proud of. And also, is Archie Bunker cancelled or not? <laughs> well, uh, let me, I think Brisbois probably thinks of herself as a musician. She was apparently uh, in the original production of Annie, actually. So, oh, wow. yeah, she probably sees herself as a singer, but I don't, dude, that's a, that Archie Bunker question, definitely a little bit, uh, out of out of my league to answer that question, but I'm 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 sure I'm sure most folks aren't a fan. Wouldn't be right. a fan of. I feel like he'd get put he'd get put on one of those starter packs that's like you missed the point by idolizing him. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which I hate those starter packs, by the way. Not I mean I love starter packs, but the ones where it's like you missed the point by I I I don't think that many people idolized fucking Bojack Horseman and you know Saul from You Better Call Saul or Walter White. It's just that compelling compelling works of art humanize people who would be otherwise seen as villains, and that is compelling but i guess it's much easier to put together some snarky fucking starter pack insulting people for liking those characters i don't know whatever archie bugger's probably canceled that show would not work today (laughs) right bottom line even though he is i argue the villain of that show but whatever anyway 
Brisbois first began working with Alexander by providing backup vocals for his 1992 album, Intoxifornication. Despite Intoxifornication being the abject and objective failure it is, the work Brisbois and Alexander did together on that album created a bond that has lasted. And this oh. bond brought the, <laughs> brought the pair together not long after Alexander's solo career had ended. May 10th, 1994, Danielle Brisbois' debut solo album, Arrive All Over You, speaking of adult, <laughs> was released. And it was produced by, you guessed it, Greg... I'm going to call him Gregory. Gregory Alexander. The album is... Uh, <laughs> it's fine. I don't know. <laughs> Allmusic.com's Mackenzie Wilson fucking loves it. Doing what everyone did then by blaming its failure on grunge and gangster rap, which is something I am so fucking tired of hearing folks lean on. <laughs> Come on, man. You know the two genre rule that there could only oh, be two right, popular. Right, right, right. Yeah, there could only be two popular genres at a time. Right. I forgot that. I think I skipped that day in school. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The way culture, that's the way culture works. <laughs> well, to be clear. Yeah, your early 90s failure had nothing to do with gangster rap and grunge. There were so many other, these, the hypothetical failed 90s artists I'm speaking to right now, there were so many other sounds and genres dominating the charts then. Wilson's review of Arrival Over You actually compares it to Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill, which you know, isn't really an appropriate comparison, but it only serves to underscore my point. If your music was great, like Morissette's, it doesn't matter what the trends were, your music will still hit with people. Right, exactly. Like, is Jag, Jagged Little Pill not considered ja gangster rap? Just like Ace of Bass? <laughs> the gangster rap group with Billboard Tropic Tarts in the early 90s, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe like the grunge music pioneers, CNC Music Factory. Oh, right. They yeah, were on the dude, Billboard I, charts. I love that. CNC song, uh, fuck it all, or whatever. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, anyway, the biggest criticism that I can give Brisbois and Arrive All Over You is that it sounds like an artist without a center, or as I love to say, a band without a scene. Now, <laughs> this isn't just the hipster punk rock elitism on my part. Because believe me, I I was not really ever accepted by any scene myself, so I don't mean to just laud clicky local scene politics, but I do believe an artist needs a center, so to speak. A band needs a scene, and an, an artist having a center, a band having a scene is like a pop song having a hook, and a hook is something that is figuratively concrete, that a listener can figuratively, hang their hat on and say, okay, I understand what is going on here. I believe it is valuable as an artist, a band, uh, to seem and sound like they come from someplace specific. It's important to have a sound that is rooted in something stable that we understand. Not only does it serve to place an artist or band within a lineage, a legacy, it helps to place the listener, it also helps the listener to understand the artist or band's identity. Now, an example of this in action. We can draw a clear line from formative blues like Blind Willie McTell to Sunhouse to early rock and roll, 
Fats Domino and Chuck Berry, anybody else, to the garage rock frat house stompings of the Sonics, to the proto-punk sounds of the MC5 and the Stooges, to the very bluesy <laughs> first-gen punk of glam forefathers, the New York Dolls, to classic 77 punk bands, and actually all the way to the rise of dance music and club culture in the 80s that grew out of literal post-punk convergences of so many seemingly divergent genres of music and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why you'll so often hear a locale attached to a genre as mm, well, mm, mm, be it a physical yeah. location, a moment in time, or just, you know, camaraderie that's formed from touring that, that creates part of the scene and part of the story for a band. You know, we have New York hardcore, we have Hyphy from that's the cool. Bay, and we got Miami Bounce, you know, those are the genres. Exactly, exactly. Dude, I was like 80% of me being so proud of being a New Yorker, if not 90%, not just a New Yorker, but being from, born and raised in New York City, it has to do with the, the history of music here, without question. That's like the majority of where my pride comes from, you know what I mean? Totally, totally. Yeah, I figured it would be similar for you too, you know? Uh, and most oh, yeah. of our friends who are from here. Uh, and, and Yeah, speaking, I mean, it puts us in... In a, in, a, in a lineage, you know, where exactly. it's, it's, exactly. it's a part of the whole story. It's, it's, a, it's an influence. It's, it, it's a common thread. So Exactly. And we're going to look at now a band from New York that did that quite successfully. And it's a big part of their legacy. Their big part of their legacy is how they have inserted themselves into the larger legacy they are now undeniably part of. I'm talking about the Strokes. I'm, and I'm not here to discuss the merit of the Strokes, but... One of the key things that made them so appealing to so many hardcore fans when they could have easily not appealed to hardcore fans was that you had no doubts about where they came from. Right, exactly. Just a small part of them, as we're not discussing, the strokes and the strokes. <laughs> oh, man. You know, the strokes will never be a topic on this show. So, <laughs> I love... I love how ardently protective you are of your boys. It is very good. I like it. Uh, and about the Strokes, while being wholly original, and they are, they wore their influences proudly. Literally. They would shamelessly wear t-shirts of the bands that inspired them during performances. Now, this, of course, had its drawbacks with folks saying they actually sound like the Velvet Underground in television, which fucking insane because they in fact they do not sound anything like those bands and the strokes purposefully placing themselves squarely inside a timeline and a, a lineage that they wanted to be part of new york city bands <laughs> that helped them that helped to enhance their significance for the people who care about that sort of stuff and it also absolutely helped to validate them for the folks who aren't even aware of that sort of stuff. So why did I just go on this tangent? Well, because Danielle Brisbois' music doesn't have any shred of this. Let's compare her to Alanis Morissette, as AllMusic.com did. With Morissette, <laughs> with Morissette, as an individual and a songwriter, you, you, can, you can really hear and feel where she comes from. You can easily accept her as an evolution of so many folk and rock artists who came before her. You get a sense of what Morissette stands for. She is easily understandable. And even if you couldn't care less about pop music history, everything I just discussed still helps to legitimize Morissette. 
Absolutely. And on the way other side of things, <laughs> Danielle Brisbois and her music does not enjoy that same sort of context, as Jerry just implied. I, I have no idea who she is as an artist. She's kind of just a person singing. And this is a criticism I would lay on Greg Gregory Alexander himself and his music at large. Alexander's music doesn't really have any defining characteristics other than it uh, just kind of sounds like sunny, light FM, funk-inflected pop. I mean, in fact, I, I suppose pop is <laughs> simply what Greg Alexander's musical center is. You know, I saw some random YouTube commenter, the most enlightened of folks, actually, say that Alexander's music sounds like musical Sunny D, <laughs> as in the drink. And <laughs> you know what? I, I agree with that. Oh my god, I love that so much. The YouTube <laughs> yeah. comment section is a real blessing to the world sometimes. Some serious big brain folks there, man. Oh <laughs> man. So, I don't believe it's surprising that Brisbois' Alexander-produced album meanders and exists without any sort of gravity at the center that holds it all together. Her music also suffers from weak choruses, due perhaps to Alexander's penchant for very airy, groundless, weak white boy funk. Which has been basically the theme of the last three episodes. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> dude, we're really, dude, we're really telling some stories here, man. We're really, we're doing this, dude. Uh, I can't get Dan Wilson's hips out of my mind, man. <laughs> I know, dude. Again, people talk about Elvis. I don't think they're watching. They're not. They're not watching the right white boy dance, man. They're not watching the right white boy. But uh, on a personal level. I need to do this. I really need to get my shit in here. On a personal level, I would like to pay respects to Danielle Brisbois. Nine Days Brisbois, along with Jim Lee's renditions of Jubilee from the X-Men, are absolutely <laughs> my style icons. Oh, yeah, and the, uh, um, the girl from the Closing Time music video? That roll-on lip gloss really left a huge impression on me. How about that? I, I, I could see that. I could see that. <laughs> yeah, I thought you thought you might be able to. Um, I do too. But I didn't bring up Brisbois just to shit on her music. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> and, and make a point that I try to dress like her. No, I mean, I, I believe me, I did want to do that. But that's not the only reason why I brought her up. <laughs> Brisbois, as stated earlier, would go on to have a lasting and lucrative friendship and business partnership with Greg Alexander. It started with intoxifornication, was reignited with Arrive All Over You, and was cemented with New Radicals and the album Maybe You've Been Brainwashed too. Oh, man. I forgot intoxifornication was the name of his album and thought homie was about to get hashtags. Like, it started with intoxifornication. Like, that's the... It's That's bad. A bad it sounds bad. To a story. Yeah, yeah. Sounds yeah, really okay. bad. <laughs> yeah, I zoned for a second there. Okay, so sorry. check this. Check this. Check this out for a story, Jerry and folks at home. Let me know what you think. It all started when Jimmy Iovine picked up a sixteen-year-old in toxifornication. Right. <laughs> 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 oh, folks, don't uh, don't you dare quote me on that. And anyway, this all brings us to nineteen ninety-seven. This is when New Radicals and the album that would become Maybe You've Been Brainwashed too started to take shape. While New Radicals was presented in ways as a band, Alexander has since made it clear that's not the case. 
He told Billboard.com in that November 12th, 2018 piece, it was, quote, really a solo project. Alexander actually elaborates on this quote four years earlier in October 14th, 2014, uh, a Billboard.com interview saying, quote, most of the record was me pulling favors with studios or musicians that had played on earlier records and were like, oh, Craig's down on his luck. Let's go play on his demo for the hell of it and we'll have a good laugh, have a couple beers and maybe smoke a J or whatever. Danielle Brisbois is, of course, one of these key collaborators. Well, this is all such a boohoo Greg story. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> and then, and according to Alexander, all but the first three songs on the final album would be mastered from that demo tape. Literal, literal tape, by the way, folks. It was an actual demo cassette. And this demo cassette would find its way to Michael Rosenblatt, the former senior vice president of <laughs> More Friends of the Show. MCA Records. Rosenblatt, who is responsible for signing, uh, oh, you know, uh, Madonna, <laughs> Madonna, then signed Alexander and his, quote, band to MCA Records. Alexander was then given a, a $600,000 advance, according to a very poorly written Village Voice article by Robert Christgau that was published on December 22nd, 1998. Mm, let's get into this. This piece of shit article is not only written with the vocabulary and syntax of an overly proud private school boy who's far too confident in his <laughs> command of the English language, but it is written with a porkies-ish energy of one too. What do I mean? Well, Christgau thought it appropriate to repeatedly refer to Danielle Brisbois, who is, by the way, by this point, already a TV star, not by name, but by the word hooker. In uh, fact, <laughs> Christgau referred to Brisbois as, quote, hooker the only two times he referred to her. <laughs> Robert Christgau uh, calls Brisbois, quote, a scrawny blonde in hooker mufti on tambourine, and also uh, Alexander's, quote, hooker honey. I wonder what he'd call me then, right? <laughs> Again, he never refers to her by name. He only refers to her as a scrawny blonde and a hooker honey. Good job, buddy. By the way, fuck you, dude. Wow, yeah, fuck that guy. That is ridiculous. And like, <sighs> oh man, wasn't she a child star? She was a child star, dude. I mean, she was an adult by this point, but she was a child star. Why? And I mean, even if she was a nobody, he's still calling a woman a fucking a hooker, a hooker, honey. What the fuck? In print. Ridiculous. This was in print. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen. This it made it past <laughs> the editor's table too. So. Uh. Yeah. 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 That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> that is true. I was just gonna say, this is a guy who considers himself a liberal. You better believe Village Voice right. considered <laughs> itself a liberal periodical, and they oh, yeah. published this. Oh man. Oh, it's so bad. Oh Lord. Anyway. Oh gosh. On October 16th, 1998, or 20th, according to some sources like PR Newswire, New Radical's first and only album, Maybe You've Been Brainwashed too, was released. The album received <laughs> largely positive reviews. 
Critics loved the boomer throwback sounds, 90s-era psychedelia-infused dance music energy, and how it wasn't just straightforward rock music. The lyrics were also praised, something Greg Alexander is quite proud of, and something I will absolutely obliterate later on in the episode. Oh, can't wait for that. If somehow boomer throwback sounds wasn't enough of an <laughs> obliteration, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get to more of an obliteration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, 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 is, oh, this is, like like you said, this is the most political podcast in 20 years. That's going to make sense soon, folks. Years. <laughs> but back to 1990. Back to 1998. You get what <laughs> <Yeah>. you give. <laughs> you get what you give was officially released as a single in November 1998. It performed very well on the charts, something we'll get into shortly, as we always do. It also caused quite a stir due to its, quote, celebrity bashing that occurs toward the end of the song and after Alexander's allegedly incendiary, politically charged lyrics, which, uh, by the way, spoiler, truly amount to a fired-up high schooler just shouting things that they just learned to believe in. You're all fakes. Run to your mansions. We got to get you a voiceover, Agent Jerry. It's fucking stacked. Yeah, I got bars. I got bars. You do. You do. You do. Yeah. This is <laughs> so. This is something we will definitely get into uh, later when we analyze the group more, uh, addressing his lyrics. I am getting ahead of myself as I tend to, but yes, the celebrity callouts were a big deal in the media. Something that none of the name-checked celebrities actually cared about. Alexander, who chose to write those lyrics, something I'm going to keep reminding you all of, is more upset about them and the attention they received than the subjects of his self-styled underdog punching up at. Uh, well, mm. <laughs> Marilyn Manson was a little upset. He said he wasn't, but he was a little upset. Manson told MTV's Kurt Loder, the last true journalist, Kurt Loder, quote, <laughs> I love Kurt Loder. <laughs> hard, hard daddy vibes. Anyway, uh, as, as Marilyn Manson told Kurt Loder, quote, I think I'll crack his skull open if I see him. Though Manson would clarify to Daddy Loder, quote, I'm not mad that he said you'd kick my ass. I just don't want to be used in the same sentence with Courtney Love. <laughs> wow. What a consistent fellow. Yeah, right? Consistency is key, man. But certified chillers, Beck and Hansen, and Courtney Love, none of them really gave a fuck. Uh, but of course, that doesn't stop the press from running with it. No, and you know what? I don't, I'm not surprised that they did. Alexander would be, though, and that's something we're going to criticize when we get there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, got, I, I do have to say really quickly, I don't have a source for this. I'm so sorry. I forgot. We'll tweet it or Instagram it or something. There is an article where Beck talks about Greg Alexander spotting him in a supermarket after this song dropped, and he runs over to Beck, and he just starts profusely apologizing. Now, this is funny for several reasons. Keep in mind, Greg Alexander threatened that he's going to kick all their asses, right? Now, Greg Alexander is like 6'2". Beck Yeah, Beck is, is like 5'8". He's like maybe a little bit taller than I am, and he's not 
as broad or strapping as I am. And for that, for the point of reference, folks, I'm I'm I am a fully grown five five and 125 pound man. Beck is in ways smaller than I am, and here's Greg Alexander in a fucking supermarket apologizing to Beck for threatening to kick his ass. Yeah, I was picturing this tall, goofy, bucket-hatted motherfucker like, just towering over Beck, just apologizing his ass off. It's kind of a beautiful image, actually. (laughs) But anyway, New Radicals went on tour for the remainder of 1998. Their tour included the regular schedule of dedicated concerts, multi-act festivals, promotional radio spots, late-night TV performances, and even, even a performance on Nickelodeon's famous watered-down, not-funny, child-safe SNL, All That. And about that, I I know I'm already being very negative, so let me just say, their All That performance is wonderful. You can tell the band is having an amazing time, and so are the kids. It's all in all, it's it's very sweet. Yeah, I totally forgot that uh, all that had musical performances. I really didn't. F- I know. I I like really didn't find that show funny when I was a kid, but I'm sure <laughs> no. it did a really good job of introducing kids to a ton of d- new music, which is which is really cool. And I totally forgot about that. I guess, dude. So you know, we're collecting minisodes with ideas, which are something that. <laughs> teaser folks that's not coming for a while though i think we have to do a minisode one day on like the music of all that <laughs> something like that yeah. <laughs> the musical yeah, guests they have acts. yeah it's weird right it's very weird and it's also probably interesting it might be interesting to look at how bands altered their um appearances if not even subject matter for that um you know i know I, well, whatever. It's that I think we should save it for this show, but that's something we should do sometime. Yeah. Anyway, New Radicals closed out 1998 by performing at the New Year's Eve celebration at Chicago's House of Blues. This show is of note as it is one of the very few New Radical shows that has bootleg recordings of it. In fact, it may be the only New Radicals performance to have bootlegs passed between fans. That is so incredible. You know, I really don't think about you know, people passing around bootlegs of bands like that, but I mean, it makes sense that it totally happened. Like, you know, wasn't some, it wasn't some cult status band like The Dead or like, I I don't even know, but I guess it makes sense that someone took the reins on documenting them. Huh? I said, or an indie band. (laughs) Or an indie band. Yeah, yeah. They're just like in this weird middle that it doesn't seem like someone would bring a home video camera, but I guess everyone was carrying that shit around then. So So I actually think it may have just been an audio bootleg. I don't know if it is I don't know if it's a video bootleg. I think it's just a tape. Oh, crazy. Right? Like but 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 even then it's like what? Who the fuck was bootlegging the new rat? You know what I mean? It's a weird band to bootleg. It's because it doesn't seem like a band that like people build their lives around, you know? Right, and it, you know, because it was all such throwback music, it never felt right. I couldn't imagine right. it felt like it was like this timeless thing that was going to be legend status, you know, like I must right, capture right, right. this performance. But I mean, people are archivists. I'll I'll, I'll give it to Is an it? archivist. It's true, but I That's won't true. give it yes. to a fan. <laughs> I like, dude. I like that distinction. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm head cannoning that. Okay. Anyway, great. Let's. <laughs> 
Thanks for your approval. Let's move on. 1999 began with a purpose for new radicals. They were enlisted by the Goo Goo Dolls. Another camp. Johnny, Johnny, Res, Johnny Resnick's a fucking tool, but he's hot. Anyway, so I'm going to stop getting aroused throughout the entire episode. Folks, this, this is not a family show. Folks, don't listen to this show with your kids. Your kids can listen separately, not with you. Don't quite. No, no. Don't. This is not a family show. Anyway. Goddamn. Anyway. They were enlisted. The new radicals were enlisted by the Goo Goo Dolls to open for them on the second leg of their strangely titled Dizzy Up the Girl tour from their strangely titled album, Dizzy Up the Girl. That tour is noteworthy as the Godals asked fans to bring canned food to each show to donate to the nonprofit USA Harvest. Very cool. And speaking of the frou-frou balls, they <laughs> might <laughs> they might be an episode one day. But for the record, right now, Dizzy Up the Girl is not a phrase I can pretend to understand. I don't think I want to either, because that might be another kind of like intoxifornication, uh, just poorly titled thing. But there was, a, to be clear, there was a lot of actual nonsense in the 90s. And Frau Frau Balls isn't nonsense? What is that? Well, is that a reference <laughs> I'm not getting here? What, what's happening? So <laughs> Frau Frau I, Balls. I, I was I was I was I was stoned when I wrote that and I just you know I just thought I thought it'd be funny. I thought I was going to be a oh, real a funny joke. content okay, creator. Okay. I'm just going to be <laughs> a right, wacky right. content creator and I'm going to say a name three different ways cuz I'm a content yeah, you, you creator. Really, you shoved Godals and Frau Frau balls in the Yeah. I yeah, appreciate I it. I just did, I just wasn't sure if I was missing something. No, no reference, just me being um, stoned and quote-unquote creative. Kids, put your parents to bed. Or parents, put your kids to bed. Either way, this is not a family <laughs> show. <laughs> but just as quickly as new radicals rose to international stardom... Dude, so good I don't even need a segue. But just as quickly new radicals rose to international stardom, Greg Alexander would pull the plug and put the dream life he was living to bed. In May 1999, the band canceled an entire UK tour and also a marquee spot performing at Atlanta, Georgia's June 5th, 1999 Rockfest show. A May 19th, 1995MTV.com article details this and cites a member of the group's touring lineup falling ill as the reason for the cancellations. We do not know if this is true. The article also states that the New Radicals would spend this downtime working on their new video <laughs> for the single Someday We'll Know. Oh, man. A band would never and could never do that nowadays. Like, no. all of a band's... Yeah, all of a band's revenue is based in live performance. Like, they're so... That would be such a loss for them and the label, and I am insane. It's, it's pretty incredible to see that move pulled off. <laughs> it is pretty incredible, actually. And actually, just oh, now we're really, now we're really yeah, foreshadowing. Well, let's see here. how pulled off it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> before we get there, I do just want to say one group we may cover soon: a certain Russian girl duo. Part mm. part of their entire career tanking was due to them canceling shows in America. If you remember yeah. talking about that, yeah, right. Well, ooh, folks, just so many, well, we'll so much teasing. We'll see what the ripple effect of them uh, canceling this this uh, tour is, because I'm sure it's not going to go unpunished. 
No, it definitely, it, dude, it definitely won't. And I, I appreciate you connecting the dots because you're actually, you realized that I think a little more than I did. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So regarding uh, information that someday may be known. <laughs> <laughs> that segue made a whole lot more sense when we didn't talk so much <laughs> in between. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a reference to the song, folks. Someday we'll know. Anyway, regarding information that would someday be known. <clears throat> Professional broadcasters here. Just two weeks before the release of that music video for Someday We'll Know, Greg Alexander sent out a now pretty infamous press release on July 12th, 1999, announcing the breakup of the new radicals. I, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> uh, finding the original version of this press release proved to be quite difficult. Let me tell you some folks. Though I did find excerpts of it in a popmatters.com piece, which, as we're going to discover in later episodes, they don't cite their sources or where they pulled that press release from. So Pop Matters... Um, we're not friends. But in this press release excerpt, Pop Matters somehow found, Alexander states, quote, It was an experience playing the artist, but I accomplished all of my goals with this record, <laughs> Okay, and I'm ready to move on and make the next step in my career. He goes on to say how he will become a songwriter and, a start, uh, and start a production company. He then also compares himself to the incomparable singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and producer, Babyface. Well, I could see maybe why he would draw some similarity there, because, uh, you know, in, in Babyface's own career, he was basically writing adult contemporary R&B. He was not really writing adult. music for the kids here. Right. Wow. Uh, so I, I could see that he'd think that, uh, but, uh, besides that, uh, so that, and then they, they go on to write for other people. Uh, but besides that, right, their okay. discographies and career are so different. Greg Alexander did not write for Whitney Houston or Beyonce. Babyface <laughs> did though. It, Greg was busier. <laughs> Greg was busier with stuff like Glee and Maroon 5. So yeah, it's a fair comparison in the early days, but not in the whole career story. Ugh. Yeah, just based off that Glee, I didn't know he wrote for fucking Glee. Jesus Christ. Glee and Maroon 5. I feel like he's really putting a stranglehold on the wine o'clock mommy blogger audience there, this Greg Alexander fellow. I would personally much rather write songs for Whitney Houston and Beyonce. And I'm not, not saying that for internet points. I'm not part of the beehive or the bayhive or whatever it's called, but I would absolutely rather write songs for those <laughs> two folks than Glee and Maroon fucking five. Well, I'm definitely a part of the Houston, Houston hive, so. <laughs> oh, man. Greg Alexander, in this press release, would go on to say he got tired of, quote, fronting a one-hit wonder to the point that I was wearing a hat while performing so that people wouldn't see my lack of enthusiasm. Ugh. He, he should have just recruited, recruited someone else to play him live and still make the cash off the top, like the rumored <laughs> MF Doom move. He was covering his face anyway. I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. Now... <laughs> About all this stuff Alexander said. I don't I don't know if I buy all that. I don't know if I do. Another thing that we're gonna learn on this show as we go on is that these artists are a little delusional and not very good at keeping uh track of their actions and their statements. In effect, 
lacking consistency. Something we were talking about already here, right? So what am I talking about here? The hat. I'm, I'm fucking talking about the hat. There are other things, but they're going to have to wait a bit. So yeah, I'm making a big deal out of this hat thing. You can laugh at me if you want, but Alexander claims here that he, he wore the hat as he, as he grew tired of the shtick to hide his lack of enthusiasm. But he's seen wearing the iconic bucket hat on the cover of the album and in the video for You Get What You Give. And each of those shoots took place far before New Radicals began touring and Alexander grew weary and wary of the grind. So, no, I don't believe that statement. And I find it very odd he'd make that statement when it can be easily disproved or at least questioned. Well, I... I I gotta say, I think you're kind of wrong here, and I think the point that he's making is that the, the hat gets lower and lower, because, like, in that first music video, you could see his eyes, but by the time that, that second video for In Someday You'll Know, it, the bucket hat is totally covering his eyes, and you don't see his eyes at any point through that video. So, so the, you know, fair. he was wearing the bucket hat, but I think his his point was that he was bringing it lower and lower as he wanted to be less and less in the spotlight, so, you know. More than just saying I'm wrong, which I do appreciate. You don't know how much that turned me on just now, Jerry. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a difference in how we're looking at this. I am taking his words literally. You're looking at clues and doing deductive reasoning. So he literally says... I was wearing a hat while performing so that people wouldn't see my lack of enthusiasm. He didn't say right. it started to get lower and lower. You did notice that though. That's interesting. That is interesting. Hatgate, I don't know, folks, at Bad Band Great Song on Instagram, Facebook, at BBGS Show on Twitter. Uh, let us know what's going on with Greg Alexander's hat. Hashtag it Hatgate. Hashtag or it Hatgate. Greg Alexander. Like, hit us up, Greggy. Let's, let's or, get to yeah. the bottom of this. Greg, talk to us about this hat, dude. Come on, man. <laughs> but what I don't believe in, aside, something I do believe in, I do believe he got tired of being a one-hit wonder. I absolutely do believe that. I also do believe that he finds it easier to um, ooh, uh, cosplay, if you will, as other artists and write in their voices, something that friend of the show, Dan Wilson, excelled at. <laughs> now, I would never, I would never, I would never want to do that. I don't want to write a Michelle Branch on Santana song. I imagine it pays well, but I don't want to do that. But I can imagine that doing so is in ways easier than trying to authentically write for yourself, which definitely isn't easy. And after all, Oh, I'm going to a college boy on you kids here. After all, as Oscar Wilde once stated in his essay, The Critic as Artist, from his collections of essays published May 1st, 1891, titled Intentions, quote, Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask and he will tell you the truth. And FYI, The Critic as Artist essay is a revision of articles Wilde wrote for the British monthly literary publication, The 19th Century. And those articles were originally collected under the name The True Function and Value of Criticism. How about that, folks? How about <laughs> that? Yeah, for real. Criticism. That is something that asshole Robert Christgau did not master. <laughs> 
No, no, he did not master it at all, dude. God damn, dude, that or that that piece he wrote really fucking sucks. Even despite yeah. the misogyny, it's just like it's this weird like proto. It's okay. You know the stereotype people have in their heads of what a pitchfork review is, but actually right. hasn't been since like two thousand three right, or four. Right, or five. Yeah. Right. That's how Robert Christgau's review reads. It's like overly wordy, like kind of gimmicky, like way too impressionistic. And like, he's like writing like a fucking drunk beat poet. It like just doesn't make sense. It sucks. It's really bad. Yeah. I really don't think anyone a pitcher fork has ever like voluntarily called someone a hooker honey. Like, <laughs> well, no, not definitely not that. No, definitely not that. <laughs> definitely not that. Oh, man. Honey, Jesus Christ! I actually, I actually just ordered a, a a choker that says "slut" on it. Now I want to, now I want a choker that says "hooker," honey. <laughs> I thought you were going to say one that says "pitchfork." <laughs> <laughs> no, but now I'm going to get a choker. I'm going to get a choker that just says "Christgau" on it now. Oh hell yeah! He's probably yeah. in New York somewhere. I don't. I'm sure he is. Yeah, I'm going to take some. Adult photos and send it to him. Anyway, I'm, so, I'm not going to do that. That would be harassment. I'm not going to do that, folks. Oh, All right, anyway, that's not that's, funny. That would be harassment. You're right. That is no. That is not funny. That would be harassment. It's, it's a little funny. But uh, that, how's that? How, that's another one of our out of context statements right there. We're just setting yeah. the show show up for success. Anyway, back to the new radicals. That was all jokes. Setting unsolicited nudes is not funny, folks. Anyway, back to the nude radicals. The, the new radicals. <laughs> the nude radicals. I got, I got nude on my mind. Back to the new radicals. I should note that the second <laughs> single, Someday We'll Know, failed to replicate the runaway success of You Get What You Give. You could chalk that up to the band's breakup and the label not promoting the single well as a result. But you could also reasonably chalk it up to the single simple fact that it just wasn't as good of a song as you get what you give. So I say, new hit, new radicals, the nude radicals, they're true one-hit wonders. Well, this goes back to something we were touching on I earlier. Yes, it does. I, I yes, also does. would not be surprised if the homies at the label just found him to be a liability. Like, who would want to work with a guy that just no-shows on a whole European tour? Like... It's I 100% agree. It's a horrible, horrible taste in the industry's mouth. Dude, I absolutely think you're right. I think people, I think uh, the people behind the scenes who sit at, the people who sit at tables and shares and talk about deals and things were totally soured on him. And they were like, this guy canceled a fucking tour. He canceled a headlining, you know, festival show. And he broke yeah. up the band why would why are we going to give this guy any shine it makes total sense i think you're dead right dude anyway so that was it for the band but of course there was and still is speculation as to what their third single may have been because there are fans out there for this band <laughs> it's crazy promotional copies for the album that have since circulated show three singles listed you get what you give and someday we'll know each released as singles and i don't want to die anymore a song that was never released as a single this is something you can actually find record of using the wayback machine on new radicals website but slightly complicating things a bit further for the people who care about this bullshit 
<laughs> website eil.com, which is Esprite International Limited, by the way, an online rare record shop that seemingly hasn't had a UI update since about 2002, shows us there are indeed promotional CDs for the proposed single of Mother We Just Can't Get Enough, and you can buy it if you want to. <laughs> so it seems like we could end the speculation right here. Maybe. Um, yeah, maybe it was. Yeah, it's, uh, it's done. We got it. Problem <laughs> solved. Andrew Fanelli, <laughs> private investigator. <laughs> oh man! I mean, but did we solve it? There's two possibilities. Before the album was released, the third single appeared to be "I Don't Want to Die Anymore," but there are promotional CDs for the song "Mother." We just can't get enough. I. Who knows? Maybe things, maybe plans changed as we've talked about them changing with other episodes. Plans do change in this funny industry. But, yeah. but with speculation over what became of Alexander and the, uh, <laughs> the now old radicals. <laughs> uh, so good at this comedy thing. Well, Danielle Brisbois, Alexander's longtime collaborator, would record and attempt to release a new album, 1999's Portable Life, produced by Greg Gregory Alexander. Oh, mm, or perhaps, mm, perhaps I should call it 2008's Portable Life, as RCA decided to delay the album by nearly a full fucking decade. Which I would not be surprised is more of a repercussion of that poor taste left in Label's mouth when Greg decided to bounce wow. out the spotlight see wow that's a correct usage of bounce dan wilson wow huge yes thank you so much for that <laughs> i want to see if we can somehow bring up dan wilson in every single episode of this show ever <laughs> um, uh-oh <laughs> no but dude that is amazing amazing insight i was like why the fuck would they delay this woman's album 10 fucking years? And as we're about to touch on, when it was finally released in 2008, it was a digital-only album. Physical promotional copies were pressed in 1999 and are available, although they are increasingly rare. I, I ordered one off Discogs. I, 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 hope, I hope so much that that's not a joke. <laughs> but, but yeah, dude, they were... They delayed it a whole year. That seemed f- uh, a whole ten years, and I think you're right. I think it's, I think it's repercussions being suffered from Greg Alexander and his fucking reckless shit with the way he ended the band and pulled out of shit. She's a, she's guilty by association. I mean, maybe this, folks. None of this is confirmed. This is all speculation. Uh, and Jerry's, by the way. So blame him, not me, if we're wrong. <laughs> but no, I agree, dude. I think that's really awesome work there, and I agree with you on that. Uh, so thank you for, for chiming in with that. Yeah, I mean, it could also be attached to some contractual shit, but, you know, at the same time, it's like double. It's just like, why? Why why are we jumping on this bandwagon? Especially since Greg Alexander, like, wrote the record with her, you know? It's like, oh, great, for he's sure. going to tour with her and then cancel the tour? It's like, it's, it's, it's oh not God, a good yeah. look. No, not dude. a good look. Again, spot on with that. Spot on. But and speaking of Gregory Alexander and the, p- I hope he hates being called Gregory, and I hear about it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Gregory Alexander, post radicals, 
he went on to pen. Jerry just talked about him writing other shit for other folks. He went on to pen perhaps the biggest song of his entire career. I'm, of course, talking about a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Started with a kiss and ended up with that or whatever the, however the fuck it goes. I'm talking about Michelle Branch and Carlos Santana's 2002 hit, The Game of Love. Not the Daft Punk song. No, definitely not the Daft <laughs> not the Daft Punk song. Oh, the complete opposite of cool. Anyway, the song went on to win Alexander a a coveted Grammy Award at the 2003 45th Annual Grammy Awards. (laughs) Yeah, from the the real reputable Grammy Association. The prestigious, prestigious Grammy Association. The song won the Grammy Award for Best Pop Collaboration with Vocals. And I tell (laughs) you, the one thing that beats the Grammys with naming conventions so specific that all meaning and understanding collapses and implodes is the fucking Billboard charts. Uh, Yeah, I can't wait for that part of the episode. I love that part. Ooh, that's, yeah, that's, uh, anyway, (laughs) oh, we're going to get there, folks, and when we do, I'm not going to be happy about it, I never will be, (laughs) and that's not all Alexander would do (laughs) in the name of profiting off of mainstream top 40 mundanity, the same mainstream top 40 mundanity and machine that he allegedly didn't like, the machine that supports the types of disposable pop stars he was allegedly vehemently against. Indeed, Alexander also co-wrote a motherfucking Hanson song, (laughs) Lost Without Each Other, for their 2004 album Underneath, only a mere six years after Alexander included them in his infamous celebrity bash-baiting screed at the end of You Get What You Give. Yeah, I mean, again, though, I don't think Hanson was ever offended by that. Like, nobody was offended by that. You know? Who was going to get intimidated by little old Greggy? You, come on. <laughs> little old Greggy, big old Greggy. I wouldn't be intimidated by him, though. But anyway, agreed. I do want to be clear. Agreed. I agree with you. I don't think Hanson gave a shit. I'm not talking about, just just to be clear, for the folks at home and everybody, Anybody else who's listening anywhere else? I'm <laughs> not talking about the people he called out. Uh, I, I, even Alexander in himself has actually stated in interviews that it wasn't really about those specific stars. Uh, they were just stand-ins for celebrity culture at large. So I don't mean to suggest Hanson was offended. I don't, I don't think they were at all. I'm asking, where the fuck is Greg Alexander's integrity if he is supporting the pop star machine? He is allegedly just generally against you see i would i would respect him more if he came forward and just said some shit like uh you know oh yeah absolutely i i hate this shit but i'm profiting off of it gotta play the game's rules to win the game see i would like that right (laughs) so yeah yeah so i just that's what i question i just don't understand how he goes from not the people but just shitting on pop stars to then Making that his entire career, but whatever. We're yeah, going to keep mean, looking you know, at this. Y- yeah, and we also don't just see like his lack of integrity. You know, It might just not be a lack of integrity. It might just be a lack of understanding and a commitment to the message, which we're going to get ah. deeper into also. Mm. But it's just a overall, you know, disconnect. I 100% agree with that, dude. 
But before we get to that, let's let's finish uh, rounding up the pop stars he did some things for. Alexander also wrote four, count them, four songs for Enrique Iglesias' 2003 album, Seven. And in 2010, he co-wrote the song, oh, this one, he co-wrote the song, Love is, <laughs> Love is a Hurricane for uh, <laughs> Irish boy band, Boyzone, along uh. with longtime collaborator <laughs> Danielle Brisbois. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna listen to some Boyzone for when writing this episode, but I really just decided it was probably better to just keep that out of my search history. Altogether. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bad enough. It's in like a Word document or a Google <laughs> Doc or whatever this is. You know, it's like. Yeah, dude, there's a lot of things that have been unfortunately named, man, and I feel like we're touching yeah. on a lot of them in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're touching on Boyzone for sure. Okay, let's. That's that's definitely an out of context statement. <laughs> we don't ever want to get isolated ever. Um, and, oh, okay, there are so many jokes, and I'm just not going to make any of them. Anyway, additionally, Alexander co-wrote and produced the music for a very bad musical rom-com starring Kira Knightley and Mark Ruffles Ruffalo, Born Again. The film's key song by Alexander, Brisbois, Nick Lashley, and Nick Southwood was Lost Souls. It was performed by professional tool, Maroon 5's Adam Levine. It's an awful song. It's an awful song that, as far as pop songs with a massive machine behind it goes, performed pretty weakly on the charts, peaking at number 83 on the Billboard Hot 100 in 2014. It is a song recorded at a frequency, this is science, folks, it is a song recorded at a frequency that renders it completely unmemorable to folks who don't have a framed live, laugh, love sign somewhere in their home next to a wine o'clock throw pillow. Science. Yeah, I mean, this really, this really plays into the whole adult contemporary arc of this story. And, and damn, Fanny, <laughs> you gotta ease up on the live, laugh, love crowd, dude. They might call our <laughs> HR department. Which is me, and I will punish you. Ooh, yes, Daddy. <laughs> Sometimes I need to be punished. <laughs> you know, just to play into my whole uh, burgeoning adult video career that we're apparently uh, announcing in this episode. Anyway, <laughs> in 2014... Yeah, BBGS and- on OnlyFans. <laughs> I'm here for it. I mean, of course, I'm here for it. I'm. I'm oh, anyway... Enough about my extracurricular content creation. In 2014 and 2018, Alexander granted some landmark interviews to Billboard.com, articles we've already quoted from extensively. In these pieces, he made some frankly insane statements that we're going to tear apart and analyze in just a short while. But to be clear, these statements further support my accusation that artists are a little delusional and not very good at keeping track of their action statements and work. And that brings us, wow, this might be the most current episode we've done so far in ways. It just brings us all the way to 2021, just as Soul Asylum's song that wasn't about runaway children earned them a performance at Clinton's first inauguration, primarily because the Clinton camp believed the song was about runaway children, New Radical's not-political song that Alexander thinks is a political song earned them a spot at Biden's inauguration. 
The irony being... <laughs> it is a yeah, and there's irony there. The irony being, if we do accept the song is political, all due to Alexander's sophomore and paper thin screed, the song in theory espouses political beliefs no money grubbing two faced politician would ever support. <laughs> FDA big bankers dying. Ooh, health insurance ripoff lying indeed. And by the way, I fucking hate health insurance. I. Well, we're gonna get okay. I'm gonna save it for when we get there. But of course, yeah, just, but to, of just course. to back up really, really quickly, it's so funny that our our through line now is they're all like weird white boy funk bands, and two out of the three have performed at inaugurations. That's that's pretty incredible. They are. I mean, I would so I wouldn't say Soul Asylum is funky, but yeah, I they I mean, Dave Perner is funky, but uh, fucking, he's a funky dude. But yes. yes. Smell counts. Smell. <laughs> he does. He does look like he would have a funky smell to him. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. So. <laughs> that's just so many just is- isolation worthy statements in this one. Oh, Lord. Anyway. But of course, of course. You might be asking yourself, how did Alexander handle this quote-unquote political song during an inauguration? I'll tell you. Alexander, Greg Gregory Alexander, bent the knee and licked the boot. The fired-up 7th-grade American history student-styled final verse sort of outro was stricken from the song. Alexander explains the reasoning for excising the politically provocative lyrics, to Pitchfork in a January 20th, 2021 article, Alexander states, quote, oh, for the inauguration and uh, only four minutes to play, eh, I, I couldn't get to the rap part anyway. <laughs> oh, God. How convenient. Oh, Coward. Coward. Seriously. Oh, my God. I can barely handle that. I didn't at all watch that performance, and I probably wouldn't have noticed, but holy shit, if that's not reason right. enough for this episode. I, Dude, I, yeah. I, now, it was, it was the, the, really the only part taken out. Why not shorten the intro or cut the fucking guitar solo? The entire yeah. performance was... Dude, 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 dude. The entire performance wasn't aired on TV anyway. You would only have oh. known... Yeah, dude, they, they did a five-minute performance of it that you can find on RollingStone.com, but what aired on TV was a three-minute and, like, 20-second clip uh, intercut with, you know, people doing dumb, fake social media things, like holding up signs saying, we love Joe right. and Kamala to, like, a camera and doing dumb, like, heart shapes with their hands, you know? So, so my point is... They could have done it. It wasn't going to make it to TV anyway. So they could have just done the whole fucking song. And again, the shorter version would have still only been what aired on TV. And I'm sure the editors would have cut out the quote political part. So they could have done the rap part, as Alexander calls it, which... (sighs) I just want to be clear before I get here. Him saying for the inauguration and only four minutes to play, I couldn't get to the rap part anyway this just sounds like he was embarrassed it just sounds like he was fucking embarrassed and and about him saying he couldn't get to the rap part i can rhyme fucking words okay i think he's being generous with himself i can rhyme words i would never say that i rap 
Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I would never say that you could Thank rap you. either, Mandy. <laughs> okay, you're hey. When you're right, you're right, Jerry. You're you're excellent. It's not like personal, you know. It's just you can't no, rap. I cannot. I cannot rap. But but what I am going to do can rhyme. I can rhyme, and what I can also do is go out on a limb, which I may be doing here, and I'm going to say this. Despite how publicly Brad... That was, now, that was a fucking segue. Despite how publicly... Yeah, we finally <laughs> hit a segue there. That was, uh, how deep are we into the episode? We finally hit one, like, real good. That was right. <laughs> well, despite how publicly proud Alexander is of these questionable lyrics... I believe he understands that they're paltry, scant, meaningless. He just shouts things with no context, thus gutting his statements of all gravity. So I think he just realized that they just didn't belong in this song. So he didn't include them in this updated version. I think that more than I think he had some moments, some super adult moment of saying, oh, well, out of respect, I shouldn't get political here. Either way, cowardly. Seriously cowardly. cowardly. Another opportunity to like really embrace those lyrics, their meaning, and try to start that very important conversation. And he just totally backs away. <laughs> like shit. Maybe the world would have would be a better place like today if he decided to use his fame and that momentum to getting that message across the world, you know? <laughs> Spe- specifically the one about Courtney Love. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, don't come after us, please, Courtney. Oh, man, we love you. I do, dude. Yeah. No, I anyway. love you, Courtney Love. Yeah. That's why we I'm love you, Courtney you. Love. We, we really love you. Do. Greg Alexander is the one who threatened violence against you, not us. Not Get us. That. I love you, Courtney Love. Get that out of the way. And also, getting things out of the way, criticism aside, I don't really care. <laughs> that they cut. I don't really care. I really don't. Like, not really. I don't really care that they cut the fucking lyrics from the song. They're bad lyrics and they don't achieve anything. But taking those lyrics out and performing at the inauguration, I'm going to ask it again. Do you have any integrity, Gregory Alexander? You are nope. so proud of those, quote, political lyrics. And yeah... Yeah, who cares about the celebrity bashing at the end? That only serves to trap the song in a time and place. But I'm going to leave this alone for a bit, and we're going to come back to these lyrics when we truly focus our critique on the band. So, how and why did New Radicals actually get involved with Biden's inauguration? Well, You Get What You Give was a favorite of Biden's eldest son, Beau Biden, and and Biden himself... Yeah, yeah. And Joe, Joe Biden himself mentioned the song in his autobiography, Promise Me Dad, as his family's rallying, quote, rallying theme song during oh, during his son Bo. I feel like I've brought cancer up in almost every episode. <laughs> during his son Bo's uh, fatal, bla- fatal battle with glioblastoma. And Vice President Kamala Harris's husband, Doug Emhoff, also used the song during uh, their 2020 campaign rallies. Hmm. 
Yeah. <laughs> almost like they didn't listen to it, right? <laughs> At least yeah, get to the point. Almost. You know? Yeah. It turns out that uh this song apparently also has deep meanings for this these uh, liberalish politicians who, yeah, I'm pretty sure have not explored the mostly meaningless, but and still vaguely politically charged lyrics. Politicians, after all, do have a rich tradition of totally misinterpreting pop songs. Republicans like Dole, uh, Reagan, Reagan, uh, even Trump, actually, using Springsteen songs like Born in the USA is a classic example of politicians just not fucking getting it. Like, Yeah, like what? People just don't listen to lyrics. They don't. They don't. And it's not just politicians. How many friends... Maybe not friends, but how many people have we known in life who say, "Oh yeah, I don't, I never listen to the lyrics." <laughs> yeah, totally. Yet pops, yet pop songs almost, almost one hundred percent require lyrics, and they're such, they're at, they're afterthoughts to the fans. It blows my fucking mind. Well, anyway, you know what? Frankly, I gotta, I think. I, I'm going to say this. Greg Alexander himself so severely misunderstands his own lyrics, weight, and value. I'm not remotely surprised that all alleged meaning of these songs is completely lost on these politicians, Biden and Harris. Uh, politicians, politi- right? Exactly. But, but, but let me just say this. Politicians for whom I, I did vote, BTW, I just want to, be, this is the most political podcast in 20 years. I just want to be clear on that. I, I don't like them necessarily, but I am left as fuck and a registered Democrat because what what else would a decent person register as? So I'm not going to be one of those hosts who says, this is not a political show. So yeah, in case it wasn't painfully obvious, folks, I'm a leftist, not conservative at all. So if you are, feel free to get the fuck out of here, buddy. I don't care, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to leave it at that too for now, you know? Get, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Yeah, you might as well, man. Go back. Fuck you and the horse you rode in on. Oh. <laughs> mm. Anyway, with that, we have new radical story. So, let's get into some analysis, shall we? The song's creation. So, you get what you give was written by Greg Alexander. And his collaborator and sort of bandmate, Rick Knowles. Knowles has an extensive career on his own, one even more impressive than his more famous counterpart and band leader, Greg Alexander. Not just more impressive, but also infinitely more palatable. I agree. I totally agree. Anyway, there is no grand story to You Get What You Give's creation. There are, however, some interesting facts. One, The song features the first ever recorded use of the word frenemies. Well, it's at least the first song to ever feature the word. But from what I can find, it's the first piece of media, period, to use the word on record. And now it's uh, the name of a podcast who should have us on as guests. Just saying. (laughs) That would be appropriate, yeah. I think frenemies is definitely a good way to probably explain this podcast's relationship with pretty much everyone and everything else. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anyway, point two. Alexander says the song is misunderstood. In a March 25th, 1999 interview with MTV News, Alexander claimed the song's most controversial component, the celebrity call-out lyrics, was, quote, an experiment in mixing together real issues and big names to see which the media would focus on. Maybe that's true. But if it were true, I have to ask... 
How come, Greg Alexander, you spent your time lamenting that the song has been misunderstood instead of gloating and reminding the media that they took the bait and your experiment paid off? Right? He won. <sighs> Greg, take, take the win, man. Or at least, like, pretend like you played the game. Like, what is that? Seriously. We're going to get into that again oh, later. Poor Greg. And again, these artists are not very good at staying consistent, man. Yeah, especially the ones that we cover, and I think that you know that's that's a huge part of it, though, and 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 consistency is just a huge part of what makes a great artist great. Reoccurring themes and shit like that. Like we're not here to talk about the great artists, though, and that's why we're going to see this inconsistency throughout. Isn't that an interesting point? There, recurring themes are strong. Consistency is important. Funny lessons to learn here, folks. Hope you're taking notes. I really do. And talking about taking notes, let's uh, let's do some studious and get into the critical reaction, commercial impact, chart success, and fan response. Critical okay. reaction. <laughs> critical reaction. Well, it was uh, fairly mixed. Nobody really hated the song or the album. In fact, it got a lot of positive reviews, but, 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 but critiques did range sort of from mediocre kind of, well, this is all right music to absolutely glowing reviews of Greg Alexander's use of funk and soul to augment his traditional rock influences. And kind of, kind of frustratingly, other critics who called out his lyrics as being potentially cliche are quick to change course and point out the quote, validity of his insights. <laughs> Good for them to point it out, right? Yeah, because we're definitely not going to be pointing that out. Anyway, commercial impact. Well, uh, while fans of this project will say the whole album is an underrated classic, the fact is the band only had one single of any worth to a mainstream audience. <laughs> don't, you know, listen, don't let the fact that the follow-up single has actual strong internet numbers in 2021. Don't let that get the actual facts twisted for you. Back in 1998-1999, there was only one song from this album that had any impact. You get what you give. And on the strength of this song alone, the new Radicals album, Maybe You've Been Brainwashed too, would go on to be certified platinum in both the US and the UK. Maybe You've Been Brainwashed too reached number 41 on the Billboard 200 album charts Thanks to the strength of You Get What You Give. Wow, that's incredibly amazing <laughs> momentum. <laughs> I, you know, hey, it's better than I've ever done. And again, really all thanks to one single. So I think it is noteworthy. And on the topic of chart success, my favorite part of the show. Woo. <sighs> oh, boy. <laughs> you Get What You Give was an international hit. In many instances, peaking higher on international charts than it did domestically, but focusing on America, which is going to become a trend for these shows, I think, these episodes, you get what you give peaked at number one on the Adult Alternative Songs chart, number eight on the Alternative Airplay chart, number 11 on the Adult Top 40 chart, number 14 on the Mainstream Top 40, and number 36 on the Billboard Hot 100. It also reached number 36 on the year-end Billboard Alternative Songs chart. And I know, oh man, I know we're only three episodes deep, but I gotta admit, when I 
do that bit, this chart success, I kind of like black out. I like go into like a, a fugue state. Like the names of these charts are completely fucking meaningless. They're so specific and so awkwardly worded, awkwardly worded. They're just completely fucking meaningless to me. And I like black out. It's a problem. Yeah, I kind of black out. I black out also a little bit and only hear you say the word chart. <laughs> I just hear chart. Just over and over again. It's like, chart. I know. Chart. Chart. Oh, I know. I remember last week's episode. <laughs> anyway, fan response. You Get What You Give was a huge song with international appeal, but it wasn't some seismic shift in culture. New Radicals was not the sort of group to amass a passionate and rabid following without even being a music snob. I think people could tell that this was a project and not necessarily a band to become completely swept up by and emotionally invested in. Not to mention Homie just bounced. (laughs) Exactly. The song didn't become something that united people around the world or caused New Radicals to tour endlessly. The song wasn't a song that set hearts and minds on fire, but... It was a pretty decent hit single that excited a lot of folks for some time. So, now let's do the deed. What makes the band bad? We haven't covered enough already. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, where to begin? Well, let me start by saying the music on Maybe You've Been Brainwashed too. Is exceptional. It's all wonderfully played, arranged, recorded, and produced music. Uh, is it wonderfully written? Well, folks will tell you yes. <laughs> I will tell you no, because I think we need a higher standard. The music is fine, but it, it's far from great. These are sounds and styles you have heard before and since, and done better. By who? I mean, I'm not going to take the time to list every single soul, funk, jazz, electronic, and rock musician and turntablist and producer who eclipse Greg Alexander and the New Radicals, but they are out there. They are numerous, and they are easily found. Just, you know, listen to fucking music. (laughs) And and really quickly uh, about the music, one real criticism criticism that I'm going to give this is... uh, For a group called New Radicals, their entire sound is rooted in the boomer era of music. And that is not a statement that can be said about almost any of the New Radicals' peers in the charts at the time. Yeah, I mean, lest we forget this dude was making music at 19, like a 59-year-old, in all (laughs) and only the worst ways. Exactly, exactly. But now that said, Alexander is a fine songwriter but one who does better when he's playing a role. He even announced in his infamous press release that it was, quote, an experience playing the artist. <laughs> well, there you go. That, that's, that, is, that line is one of the few times, if not the only time, where I find Alexander's thoughts, words, and actions clearly aligning with zero contradictions. I love that. So true. <laughs> Right? With New Radicals, he was playing a role, just as he would as a songwriter for other folks. The one time in his career when he wasn't playing musical dress-up was at the start of his career, and it failed miserably. Yeah, Alexander is a fine songwriter, but I don't know if he's a great artist. However, just like the focuses of our previous two episodes, Greg Alexander 
seems to misunderstand himself, his work, and his place in the pantheon of pop music. Now, it may seem like I'm about to attack Alexander himself. You're not? But I'm not. Well, I, okay. I'm not... I'm, I'm not... I'm not primarily doing that. <laughs> All right, I thought so. Okay. <laughs> what I am going to primarily do, however, is analyze his lyrics and his own understanding and communication of those lyrics because I accept that the music is fine. The music on its own is not enough to label new radicals as a truly bad band, but pop music, for the most part anyway, for the most part, is music plus words, and Alexander's words are terrible. I can't argue with you there either. (laughs) I'm thankful for that. (laughs) So I'll start with this. Alexander believes that his 1998 lyrics for You Get What You Give were the most politically charged lyrics in 20 years prior to 98. Yep, this is where all the jokes Uh and the memes are coming from, folks. And hey, don't believe me? Alexander explains the lyrics in question to Billboard.com in the November 12th, 2018 article as, quote, challenging the powers that be in a pop song that got on pop radio all over the world. That hadn't happened in terms of being that political in, fuck, 20 years? God damn. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, do we even really need to talk about that? Like, what? A complete debased statement. I think it's probably because he was only working with Danielle Brisbane, whatever (laughs) fucking garbage she was writing. It was definitely the most political album she ever touched, so. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude, it's insane. I mean, like, what is he he thinking? Because he's acting like most politically charged... 20 years what because the NW, nwa fight the power and their entire fucking career didn't happen right just right. public public enemy didn't happen right rage against the right. machine didn't happen right <laughs> yeah yeah greg alexander come on man nwa public enemy rage against the machine and others were writing and recording overtly powerful provocative and truly incendiary political pop songs well within 20 years of you get what you give and before you get what you give and their music features entire songs not just a fucking stanza an entire entire songs and entire albums dedicated to fully fleshing out intensely political concepts man oh, fuck and that's and that's just three bands. Like, come on, Ooh. dude. What, really? what a just incorrect. three. So incorrect. Whew. Trying to cool out, trying to relax. Now, let's take a look at these lyrics that Alexander is so proud of. You know, the most political lyrics in 20 years of 1998. Health insurance with They are as follows. Oh, man. Health insurance. Rip-off lying. FDA. Big bankers buying. Fake computer crashes dining. Cloning while they're multiplying. I don't... I'm gonna... Okay, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna fucking repeat that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume that none of that made sense because it sounded like word salad. I'm gonna, I'm gonna repeat it. 
Health insurance ripoff lying, FDA big bankers buying, fake computer crashes dining, cloning while they're multiplying. Okay, quickly, before I get into what I've written, I get it. I get it. I don't like health insurance companies. It's a ripoff. The FDA is a racket. I remember the Y2K crisis, and I remember Dolly the sheep. But none of that makes sense together! Ugh! And okay. So that's it. Health insurance ripoff. That's it. Those are the lyrics. Those are the lyrics he's so proud of, and they come with zero fucking setup and zero follow-up. There is no context. These are inconsequential mutterings of a man who thinks he is making a grand statement. Health insurance, rip-off lying, FDA, big bankers buying. He's just shouting things. These paper-thin lyrics are a stoner, lazy liberals version of some QAnon bonehead just screaming like, well, hey, what about the kids in the pizza shop and the furniture? Hi, hi, hi. I'm just asking questions. And to Alexander's political lyrics, all I can do is call upon Shakespeare's Macbeth and say that Alexander's lyrics are, quote, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. (laughs) That is so perfect. Thanks, Bill. Whoever he or they were, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good. Wrote some some pretty good stuff, that Shakespeare thing. Anyway. Cooling out, cooling, relaxing. I am so relaxed. And those political lyrics preceded the more infamous lines of fashion shoots with Becca and Hanson, Courtney, Love, and Marilyn Manson. You're all fakes, run to your mansions. Come round here, we'll kick your ass in. <sighs> At least those lyrics are coherent and cohesive thoughts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those are fully fleshed out. And again, in a March 25th, 1999 interview, we already said it, I'm going to bring it back. With MTV News, Alexander claims that this whole thing was a purposeful experiment. He says it was an experiment in mixing together, this is a quote, an experiment in mixing together real issues and big names to see which the media would focus on. Oh my God, yeah, Greggy, the fucking scientist. Oh my God. Greg... Greg Alexander, you shot yourself in the fucking foot. Because the way you handled these, quote, real issues was terrible. You handled them with the care of a five-year-old. You just blurted out words and made statements with zero support and then followed that up with a comparatively well-written screed against very famous of the time pop stars. Your attack of those pop stars was better written and more compellingly delivered than the, quote, real issues you allegedly cared about. So your experiment was flawed from the jump, my guy. Yeah, I couldn't have said that better myself. Thank you. But damn, dude! Craig Alexander, not you, Jerry. But damn, dude! You'd go on to further complicate things by lamenting that the press just didn't get it. What was, in 1999, allegedly some grand and wry half-prank, half-experiment to see what the media would put more focus on, has turned into, by now, you, Greg Alexander, complaining that the media chose to focus on the wrong thing. In effect, misunderstanding the point of your song. So what is it, Greg Alexander? 
Did you play them all for chumps and did they take your bait? Or did you write the lyrics totally earnestly and without provocation in mind and you're upset that your song has been misunderstood as some aggressive celebrity bashing anthem? Which is it? Yeah, do you even know what you're did man is like is your name even Greg Alexander? Are you really Jason Alexander's cousin even? Jeez. Uh, I don't even think private investigator Andrew Finelli is going to be able to solve that one. But anyway, pick one, Alexander. You got to pick one. Did you play the media or did they misunderstand you? You got to pick one because you can't have it both ways, Greg Alexander. Greg Alexander. And if you are sincerely upset the media chose to focus on the celebrity bashing bits and not the quote political message, God damn it. Still take ownership over the fact that you wrote those fucking lyrics, man. You didn't have to do the celebrity bashing bit. You chose to do that. You could have made the whole fucking section political. God damn it, Greg Alexander. Yeah, I mean, also not to mention the entire rest of the song. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of other shitty things. There's a real opportunity there. Oh, so true, Jerry. So true. I agree. He really squat. Uh, I don't know where he was coming from with this song. Anyway, there is at least one other profound piece of bullshit and self misunderstanding we have to go over. In that same November 12, 2018, Billboard.com interview, Alexander would continue to focus on his mm, virtuous subject matter and how it compares to other more crude, cliche, and base subjects that most pop songs are about. Alexander tells Billboard.com, fucking hate this quote, by the way, <laughs> Billboard tells Alex, uh, Alexander tells Billboard.com, quote, if I had kept trying to assert things that I think a lot of other people were feeling about where society, technology companies, and big businesses were going, yeah, I, I think there would have been a concerted effort at some point to say, hey, we can't let artists think that this is fair game for them to talk about anything but sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh my God, seriously. Yeah, has this dude listened to any music besides Danielle Brisbaugh? <laughs> like really <laughs> oh man oh. <laughs> I don't know dude but again Al what I do know is Alexander is completely overblowing the magnitude of his political lyrics but beyond that Greg Alexander is essentially taking swipes at sex drugs and rock and roll being the most written about pop song subject matter oh man Greg Alexander oh man well, I read the lyrics to every single fucking song on Maybe You've Been Brainwashed To. There is one song, you get what you give, that has a vaguely political message, and it comes at the end, and it's just a smattering of words. They're not even fleshed out ideas. But beyond that, Greg Alexander, the overwhelming majority of your songs are quite specifically about sex and drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Major twist. Not. <laughs> uh, okay, one small and fucking disgusting example of Greg Alexander's preoccupation with sex and drugs, which, by the way, folks, is not a bad thing at all, but since he chose to shit on it, I'm throwing it back at him. So one small example of his hypocrisy in full effect is verse 5 from the terrible song, 
I hope I didn't just give away the ending. Quote, oh, I just hate the way this begins, and I don't even, knowing the, 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 the denotation and connotation of the word fey, I don't know what he's implying, but I hope it's not the... I hope there's no tinges of homophobia or... Anyway, here's the fucking line, folks. We caught a fey taxi driver. I smiled. The ride was free. I felt like Amsterdam. She wanted more drugs. And maybe me. I told her dealer I was broke. He hired a cameraman. We did a porno film for Coke. I hear I'm big in Japan. Well, are you an illusion? Or am I just getting stoned? Because I can't take it alone. I can't take it alone. I hope I didn't just give away the ending. <laughs> he, put a pe- he put a penis size joke in there. I hear I'm big in Japan. He put a fucking penis size joke. A racist one at that. So, yeah, that's one example of Greg Alexander's lyrical content dwelling on sex and drugs. Something he seems to imply is beneath him. <laughs> fucking asshole. Oh, how we face fuck ourselves with our feet, huh? How about that, folks? Yeah, seriously. The lack of self-awareness is really some of the ultimate downfalls for these quote-unquote artists. Dude, and specifically with this guy, it's almost... It, his lyrics are so overwhelmingly just bad, it's almost 100% of what makes New Radicals a bad band. Almost. Yeah, absolutely. Almost. Almost, but I'm going to fill in the other side of the argument now. Beyond my issues with Alexander's inane lyrics, the band is bad because they don't offer us anything we haven't heard before. And as I stated earlier, everything they do offer us has been done better, and it continues to get done better. So, yeah, I'm going to turn my focus to the Muzak now. Let's do it. Now... I'm not going to pretend that this music is as bad as others that we'll cover, but for the purposes of this show and the intellectual exercise that the show is predicated on, (laughs) New Radicals is a truly bad band. It's very well done, incredibly trite music that doesn't have much staying power. I, I, I got this new thing where I'm going to try to deliver, uh, deliver absolute like insults as though they're objective statements. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Show. Yeah, exactly. People who defend this music say the album is an underrated classic. And uh, about that. The album is not underrated. It's, in fact, overrated. Classic? Eh. Eh, that's very subjective. And uh, I'll attack that subjectivity by telling you all Sure, anecdotally, but telling you all that nearly across the board, all fans focus on is the one single, You Get What You Give. And then they tend to discuss the rest of the album as a whole. Nobody out here, at least that I've seen, is just just saying like, oh, you know, tracks four and seven are amazing and here's why. So I argue that even fans of the band love the album mostly as background music. Otherwise, I think we'd be hearing and reading passionate defenses of deeper album cuts. And to me, background music doesn't make for a great band. Yeah, or at very least we could see, you know, the song listen numbers that reflect that people are even listening to the other songs. Right, you right, Got What right. You Give has just under a quarter billion views. 
And their next most played song, Someday We'll Know. Nope, I'm going to tell you right now. It has just <laughs> over 16 million views. You know how I feel about numbers, don't you, Andy? <laughs> the I only do. truth. I do. I do know how you feel about numbers. And again, I want to remind folks, because 16 million is a lot. Again, folks, don't get it twisted. That's the internet bringing 16 million folks to one video, one song, one Spotify recording, whatever. Over the course of fucking years, remember, I, we were there when this song came out in 1998, 99, it did fucking nothing, okay? Don't let, don't let it get that twisted, man. Anyway, this is something, this music, maybe you've been brainwashed to, this album, this is something you listen to and you get blown away by how good it sounds. The whole album, but specifically, specifically you get what you give. And, hey, you maybe get blindsided by how kind of fun it is to listen to, but... For me, anyway, if it weren't for the primal scream-style ecstasy-popping beats that anchor each song, I don't think it would have felt very current for 1998. Current. I don't think it would have felt very current or lively. And I don't think it would hold anybody's attention, to be honest. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like I say this every week, but I really <laughs> struggled getting through this record more than the last one. <laughs> Oh man, I think that's um, that might be a bit of my uh, sadism in full force here. Just making sure that you actually listen to all this terrible music. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, uh, that's another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, <clears throat> none of this. Should be should none of this should be surprising. None of these compliments that we're giving the music folks, even though we're saying it's bad, because Greg Alexander is a great producer and a very good songwriter, even if it's not at all my taste. I do truly believe that Alexander can set a scene, and he can set a scene well. He's a great producer. He can create a mood and an atmosphere with detailed soundscapes. But at the end of the day. There is something fundamentally lacking in his music. For music so indebted to soul, there is a profound lack of soul and emotional connectivity in his music. Absolutely style, completely trouncing substance. And the style is so strong that there is a lot to love here. But it's also absolutely an album that you can leave off your desert island list, to be real. <laughs> Was anyone even considering it for that? Well, so, uh, you know... As I tend to uh, lurk in forums and places where fans are, I did actually find a Guns N' Roses fan site that for some reason had an entire thread dedicated to the new Radicals. <laughs> and um, a guy going by the name of James, who only has a photo of Buckethead as his photo, specifically says that this album is a Desert Island album for sure. So yeah, James, right. this was this was this one's for you, James Buckethead, James. <laughs> anyway, if you don't buy what I'm saying, listen to his solo records. He didn't have a mask then. Those records are honest, but they're fucking abysmal. <laughs> Amen. No, <laughs> if you love this music, man, all the power to you. But 
if you love this, I argue that you're the type of person who probably can put almost anything on and just have a nice experience, which I, that's cool if, if for you, <laughs> for you, but I am not going to pretend to understand that. For example, the track that Jeho- the track uh, Jehovah made this whole joint for you is is kind of a peak example of something that's totally pleasant and completely disposable. But there are people who allegedly love it. I, doesn't make sense to me, but that's when I start to think of. I guess you know we all just listen to music differently. <laughs> I guess yeah, totally. you know. I look for music that is arrestingly powerful. Music that is undeniable. Music with a focus and a force that is equal to an undertow when you're in the water, you know, you get your fucking legs pulled out from under you. This isn't that. This is really, really low-key music that has nothing essential going on. It's nice. It's nice music. And as we discussed in our previous episode, for me anyway, nice doesn't really cut it. And it shouldn't for you listening either. So I guess if you're listening to, yeah, but I guess if you're listening to this show, you probably already agree with us on that. So maybe I actually wonder what our, what our percentage of, of audience that agree and disagree is, you know? Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Yeah. Folks, let us know at bad, Ben. great song on Instagram, Twitter, uh, at and Facebook rather at BBGS show on Twitter. Let us know. Do you agree or do you not? Anyway, and if you were to put this album on for someone without telling them what it was, by the way, I'm pretty sure they'd have no idea what it is. Well, I, you know, unless it's the song you get what you give, but I guess we should probably talk about that now and how that song is pretty damn great. Let's start with our technical analysis as usual. So You Get What You Give is a kind of anomalous song as far as pop songs go. It doesn't have a single real identifiable hook. The hook, I'll argue, is the energy the song creates from the second it starts. The song captures the energy of a party, uh, a beat drop, a hit of ecstasy, the onset of an orgasm. Kids, put your parents to bed. But I'm psh. Uh, it, <laughs> right? it, it hits you so fast and takes hold so tightly that you don't really even quite recall how it started, frankly. The song does not start, however, with a recognizable figure of music as much as it starts with a recognizable sound and a palatable, palpable energy that promises something big is about to happen and quickly makes good on it. Just about 12 to 14 seconds in, and the atmosphere in the song is just dripping wet. There's just so much sound, so much production, without even being truly cognizant of it. It just sweeps you up and takes you away. And if you're listening to this song with some nice headphones and you're smacked, I don't even like this song. Forget about it. I mean, shit. Fucking forget about it. Exactly, bro. This song shows off how great of a producer Alexander is. Plain and simple. This song is filled with ear candy and room for your listening skills to explore. This song is a truly three-dimensional space in a way that most pop records don't. Hell, in a way that most any kind of records don't. 26 seconds in, and the song proper starts with a massive beat drop. 
He really does use his production skills best on this track. It's like he the world he creates is so 3D. It sounds awesome. It does. Again, like I don't personally love the song, but it fucking sounds great. And about those sounds that we get in this 3D world of audio. <laughs> Soul, funk, classic rock, and woozy, pill-popping, early 90s, psychedelic-tinged club music all come together pretty instantly, right as the song starts. There's so much going on and seamlessly woven together that even as the song settles into a conventional verse, pre-chorus, chorus, and repeat structure, the layered textures and sounds leave so much for you to continually discover. And, uh... Yeah, you know, there's a there's a very short solo and a bridge and an outro. The song, structurally, is conventional. And that's great! That conventional quality is what makes it an excellent pop song, as opposed to so many other genre-blending experimental songs that came before it. And other than the start of the song, there's no real shifting dynamics being done here. You know, once the song starts raging, it does not stop till the end, like any great party. I guess. <laughs> and uh, I have to note the piano. I fucking love this piano. For all the wetness and the production, the effects, all the layers of just bullshit, this is, there's a very, very organic and real piano sound underneath it all. Kind of, it's kind of what gives it that Stonesy flavor, actually. Um, and it, it, more broadly speaking, it gives it that vintage analog organic quality underneath all the studio wizardry that even a shimmering clean tone or slightly crunchy guitar doesn't or wouldn't have achieved, in my opinion. Yeah, not to mention the tone of his voice. Definitely not talking about the context of the lyrics, though, but the tone (laughs) of his voice is... Oh man, yeah, and about the lyrics. Sits in the mix, as they say. <laughs> it does. It, it does sit in the mix, yeah. But about those lyrics you alluded to, well, um, <laughs> man, all I gotta say is primacy and recency. People remember the first thing and the last thing. It's true for movies, books, music. It's true for pretty much everything. And when it comes to lyrics inspiring people, this song starts with a fucking bang. Wake up, kids. We got the dreamer's disease. <laughs> Wake up, samurai. We got a city to burn. <laughs> no, it, um, it, uh, dude, that's a strong fucking opening, especially for capturing people's imaginations. Let's say that again. Wake up, kids. We got the dreamer's disease. Now, listen, call me crazy, but when people talk about how inspiring this song is, uh, I'm going to say they're referencing that one line in the chorus. Uh, but, you know, because, like, chances are, I don't think they're thinking of lines like, every night we smash a Mercedes Benz. Yeah, chances are those lyrics aren't the ones that are top of mind when people laud the song for its uplifting nature. The opening line, no, right? <laughs> the opening, it's, got, it's actually some spoiled, bougie, rich kid bullshit. Every night we smash a Mercedes Benz? Fuck you, Greg Alexander. Come on, dude. You didn't grow up like that anyway. Don't front. Michigan Jehovah's Witness, you weren't fucking crashing Mercedes-Benzes each night. Anyway, the opening line, the anthemic chorus, and the outro pleas of don't give up, don't let go. Yeah, I get it. That's inspirational. All that, that has left indelible marks on people. Yeah, but those last bars he drops at the end are still just straight up atrocious. (laughs) But... 
it somehow doesn't ruin the whole song, which is impressive. Somehow, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, primacy and recency, like you are saying before. Like, it's, yeah. it's incredible. For sure, for sure, for sure. Well, and speaking of recency, we're getting to the end of this show, so I think it's time to uh, bring this horse home, Jeremy Cohen, and get into our personal analysis. All right, bring the horse home. <laughs> oh, damn. I mean, fuck it. I, I love this song. Yeah, you do. Well, no, e- no, I-, I love it, but even even though I don't, no, no, no you love it. Mm. What do I? What do I mean here? <laughs> Wait, I guess yeah. Tell tell me what you mean. Tell me what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I got confused myself. I mean, <laughs> shit. Uh, listen, uh, throughout the work for this episode, uh, <laughs> uh, folks, you may not know this. We listened to an entire a band's entire discography. It wasn't much for this, okay? I get it. But the point is, we listened to the music for writing this episode. And even during the work for this episode, I gotta be real, this is not a song that I just chose to put on. Like, not really, <laughs> you know? I, I never have a desire to, <laughs> to hear this song. Everything this song does, I believe, is done better by Primal Screams moving on up from their album Screamadelica. From the late 60s, early 70s Stones flavor to the unbridled, uplifting, and soaring positivity, uh, all of that, I think it does it better. <laughs> but at the end of the day, that Screamadelica album is more dance music than anything else. Moving On Up is kind of the most conventional song on that album, and even then it leaves a lot of room for desire if you were just looking for a straightforward, totally conventional song. So, here I am, really for the first time in this show, actually, three episodes deep, so deep into the show, but still, for the first time, here I am, really having to actually look far past my own personal taste to understand not only why others enjoy this song, but why do I? <laughs> why do I believe this song is great, even if I don't personally love it and never put it in rotation? Uh, it's music. Ideally, yeah. Ideally it is, right? But, you know, as we'll exp- continue to explore with this show, personal feelings get wrapped into it perhaps more often than they should. At least when, at least when it comes to critique, personal feelings should be invested into music. When it warrants it, when it warrants it, not so much the critique, though, I think. Uh, well, you know, we can ignore me raising my voice for the time being. <laughs> anyway, this song's power is in how conventional it is. So, another thing you may not know about me, folks, <laughs> I'm a big pro-wrestling fan. Though when it comes to the average size of wrestling fans, you're probably pretty small. <laughs> That would be true. <laughs> just like that. Uh, just, just like that, yeah. But, I, but trust me, folks, this is this is gonna work. I promise. This is gonna this is gonna work. And this is gonna go someplace. So I'm a I'm a, <laughs> I'm a big pro wrestling fan. Now, obviously, before the theatrical, performative, and predetermined nature nature of pro wrestling became commonly known, the business, uh, 
was predicated on fooling people. Well, you know, part of fooling people essentially comes down to eschewing predictability because real life quite often goes in directions that we never saw coming, right? Well, however, that storytelling strategy continued well into people fully understanding pro wrestling for what it is, the, the entertainment product that it is. And that desire to swerve people at any cost has unfortunately led to some very bad storytelling. I.e., in other words, the, integri- the integrity of a long-form story was compromised just to make sure that the ending was something no one saw coming. Just like the WWE. Exactly like the WWE, which... All right, I got to get this out of the way. I, WWF introduced me to wrestling. I fucking loved it as a kid. W, and I still love pro wrestling, but I do not love the WWE. That is some embarrassing fucking television. Oh, boy. AEW all the way. AEW, AEW. Come at me in the comments, folks. I don't give a fuck. But anyway, the fact is, for art, especially art as entertainment, this is why I brought this all up, folks. The fact is, for art as entertainment... Conventional is good. If a story is well told, it doesn't matter that we know the heroes are going to win. You know what I mean? Like, did anybody think fucking at the end of that one Marvel movie where all the Thanos guy snaps his fingers and everybody fades away? Did did anybody think Spider-Man was actually dead? Come the fuck on. No. But it's still made for a... You still paid to see the next movie when they all come back. Conventional is good. Conventional is good. It can be, anyway, when it's handled well by a good artist. So for all the ways that New Radicals music allegedly does so much different, so much so different than all its contemporaries, it is very, very conventional music. Not one song is seven minutes plus. Something Screamadelica does quite often. Though there is one song that comes close to... Favorite of the show, the one we quoted the unfortunate lyrics of earlier, I hope I didn't just give away the ending. That song and all its unfortunate lyrics clocks in at 6 minutes and 37 seconds. Almost reaching, but thankfully not reaching the 7 minute mark. But at least it has lyrics. (laughs) Something that most Screamadelica songs don't really have. Right? Thus rendering it not that palatable to a mainstream audience. And, And yeah, Believe me, I know, I know, there are lyrics on that album, but not really. And I'll be real, for my personal tastes, Primal Scream Screamadelica is a far more sophisticated version of a type of music that is similar to what we get with New Radicals, and maybe you've been brainwashed too. But even though it's more sophisticated, it's less conventional. And as I got into and stated a bit earlier... Maybe you've been brainwashed too, and specifically you get what you give, takes the pill-popping, plur, cosmic spirituality of early 90s dance floors and distills it into something much more palatable and kid-friendly. Conventional. And despite how I phrased all that, that's a compliment in this context. I'm shrugging. I'm, 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 I am shrugging. Now I'm shrugging. All right, I was uh, you drew that shrug emoji guy here, yeah. and I was yeah. really I was leaving some space there to see how you were gonna say that because that <laughs> yeah I don't know okay sorry that I was am, a confusing sentence I've written but 
I'm shrugging IRL with my body. And also, I didn't write an emoji, Jeremy. That is an old school emoticon featuring Unicode. It's cool. Okay. <laughs> I gotta, all right, Andrew. Man, that's something I thought you would have been a geek for. God damn it. All right. I'll have you know that there is a very pretty girl and guy separately texting me as we speak. And they are using emoticons, not emoji. And I think both of them are very cool for it. Hmm. I'm going to go huh. out on a date with both of them. Not not at hmm. the same time. Mm, how Why about not? that? Oh, because I that's actually a good I don't have an answer for that. That's a really good question. I, maybe we'll maybe maybe we'll talk about that. Anyway, moving moving out of my adult video career and back into the show, this song is powerful. And it's clear to see. It's clear to me. And again, I don't personally love this song. But this song absolutely uplifts people. And it, it means, frankly, so many different versions of uplifting for so many different people. It's a political rager for some people, somehow. <laughs> somehow. It's whimsical with a sort of spiritual bent to it in the way that it almost seems to suggest there is some special spark inside of us. Those of us who have the dreamer's disease which is a phenomenal line, it really is. It's uplifting in that it evokes ideas of perseverance through hardship. It's also uplifting in that it recalls the seemingly endless summer nights of frivolity that is a certain time in youth. You know, like the, um, the summers of, of your junior and senior years of high school. And that is where this song succeeds the most. I think anyway, even for folks who haven't read or simply don't understand any of the lyrics other than bits about crashing a car and being a dreamer, the song deals in nostalgia. It has an energy, an essence, really, that immediately evokes feelings of, of rose-tinted, rear-view-guided nostalgia-stoked optimism. The song, simply put, just makes people feel good. And with that, I'm going to say school's out for the day, kids. Bye. <laughs> the bell is rung, and I think it's time to bid you, the folks at home, good night and farewell. So, folks, thank you for your time. Stay strange, be kind, and as always, love yourselves. Nobody else is going to do it. Well, so just uh, cover one last thing. In the last episode, I said... Sometimes it might be a good a good opportunity to just quit. Sometimes <laughs> you just gotta know when to to quit. And in this episode, I'm gonna say you gotta know when not to fucking quit, <laughs> especially if you if you got a tour coming up, uh, and and especially if you have a message to say that nobody's received or understood. Like, don't quit. Finish the tour. Get your message across. Make sure people understand what you're trying to say. God damn it. <laughs> oh, I agree. And see you in hell, folks. I love you. <laughs> <laughs>